I'm going to invite you to pull your message notes out. We're going to finish the series today. This is week number six. It's our finale, the conclusion. Last week, I gave you the how of the series. Like, if you want to be successful at pulling off the series, you need to know how to be successful. And it's, how, and it's all about contentment. Uh, that's what we looked at last week is what does it mean to be spiritually content? Because I can't live on a budget if, if I'm not content. I'll blow my budget if I'm not content. I can't live beneath my means if I'm not content. I'll live above my means or, or I'll consume everything on myself if I'm not content. And so we need to learn how to be content so that we can be great stewards in life. So contentment is the key to really making all of this work. Because without contentment, how many of you know I'm going to try to keep up with the Joneses? And if I try to keep up with the Joneses, I'm just going to ruin myself financially because I'm going to keep buying stuff I don't need with money I don't have to impress people I don't like. And that's the problem with the Joneses. And yet that's where most of America is at today, and so we've got to figure this out. So today I want to give you the why. Uh, last week was the how, this week is the why. This is why this series is so important. This is why it impacts so many different areas of your life, and why, if I were you, I would take note and pay attention, because this is going to be incredibly valuable to your future, not just the here and now, but your future. I mean, no, you only get a little bit of your future here on earth. The rest of it is in eternity. And the part that's in eternity is going to be a lot longer than the part that you got here. So I'm going to give you a lordship test to begin. And this test will help you realize whether or not this, this is for you. Uh, if this impacts you at all, then you know you should read these books. Like, like pass or fail this test will be a great indicator on whether or not you should read these books and take this serious, uh, series seriously. And so this is not um, a test that you're going to have to take out loud. No one's going to know if you pass or fail the test. It's between you. You take it in your head. And so you don't have to tell anyone else unless you want to tell anyone else. But here's how it works. I'm going to give you two statements. I'm going to read you two statements. If either one of these statements are true, if either one of these statements were true, which statement would create the greatest amount of anxiety in your life? If either one of these were true, which one would impact you the hardest? Which one would cause your heart to sink, cause your heart to fall a little? Which one would put you into like a, a temporary state of shock? If either one of these were true, which one would impact you the hardest? Here we go. Statement number one, there is no God. There's no God. There's no such thing. This is a fairy tale. We're actually wasting our time every week showing up around here. There's no Jesus. There's no God. There's no afterlife. There's no heaven or hell. We just cease to exist when we die. There is no God. It's all a fairy tale. It's all made up. You know, we're just wasting our time. There is no God. Statement number one. Statement number two. You have no money. It's gone. Everything you had last night is gone today. Your bank accounts have been raided. You have a zero balance. You have no hope to recover any of that money. All of your investments are gone. They're all wiped out. They've all, they've, they've all fallen apart. You've lost your home. It's been foreclosed, taken away from you. You can't get it back. All your possessions, all your jewelry, everything is gone. You're broke. You have no money. Zero zilch. It is gone. Like Overnight, you've lost it all. If either one of these statements were true, which one would create the greatest amount of anxiety in your life? Which one would be the hardest to deal with? Which one would, would, would cause your heart to sink? Which one would cause you to panic and i, I got to figure this thing out? Now, while you're feeling really good about yourself or not feeling so good about yourself, let me put it into a different context. You're in a hospital room, and the doctor just came into the room. And the doctor says to you, I, I, I'm so sorry that, that I have to say this to you, but you have days, maybe a couple weeks left to live. We, we've done everything we can do. There's nothing else we can do. I've been in this position twice in the last two weeks, and it's hard. There's, there's nothing else we can do. We've done everything we can. We could try to prolong it a little bit more, make it a little comfortable if we can, but, but there's nothing we can do. This is untreatable. This is incurable. You have days, maybe a couple weeks left to live. Now, in that context, which one of these statements is going to matter to you most? See, I'm telling you, in that position, all of a sudden, you're not thinking about, I wish I would have made more money. 
I wish I would put some more hours into the office. In, in that moment, you're thinking about what's next. You're not thinking about your money anymore. All of a sudden, all of your hope goes to God. So here's the point. This is what the Bible teaches us. If your hope is going to be in God at the very end when you have no control over what happens next, why not put your hope in God in the middle? When if we were very, very honest, we have absolutely no control over what happens next. You see, it's this rationale, it's this reasoning that propelled the first century church into a radical state of generosity that literally established Christianity as we know it. We would not be here today without this thought process impacting the first century Christians into this unheard of state of generosity that the world had never seen before. You see, this is our legacy. You need to understand that Christianity was not built on theology or beliefs, but it was built on radical, unprecedented generosity and compassion from first century Christians who understood this to be true. You see, they actually believed, the early Christians actually believed it was your compassion and generosity that proved you were in sync with God. Like They didn't believe that, that you could be born again if it didn't make you radically generous. Like the sign of Jesus changing your heart was all of a sudden a stingy person became radically generous, and that was the sign that, that Jesus Christ took hold of your heart. Let me help you understand this. Historians have been baffled by this for years. If you study history for generations, historians could not figure out how did this insignificant group of ragtag followers of this Jewish carpenter that was hung on a cross in Palestine, how did this group of people who had no political power, no financial power, no military power, how did this insignificant, very small, very obscure, outcast group of people overthrow and topple the largest empire in the history of mankind, the Roman Empire? How did Christianity do that? It was their radical generosity. It was their radical state of compassion that they lived in. You see, if you would have gone to Christians in the first century, I want you to imagine AD 80 or AD 90. You, you're outside of Rome and you're on a farm and in the back of this farm, there's a barn and in the back of the barn, there's a Christian family huddled together, hiding for their life because their neighbors are being paid by the Roman government to turn them in so they could be taken to Nero's circus and fed to lions and fed to bears and fed to gladiator and be tortured and killed in unimaginable ways. And if you sat down with this family, and you said, did you know that in this city of Rome, in just a couple hundred years from today, if you'll walk through the streets of Rome, in, in just, just about 200 years from today, every building in this city is going to have crosses at the top of buildings. Like if you go to Rome today in Italy, you'll see crosses on almost every single building in the city of Rome. And you don't think that that's impressive because you're thinking, well, the Vatican's in Rome. So obviously they have crosses everywhere. I'm telling you, go back to 80, 80 or 90 and you talk to this Christian family hiding in the back of a barn and you tell them that one day every building will be adorned with crosses. They'll think you're crazy. There's no way. Well, what are you talking about crosses across the city of Rome? Like, we love Jesus, and we love what he's done for us, but we're a very small group of people. We don't have any influence. We don't have any significance. We don't have any power. We don't have any military. We don't have any money. Rome is forever. This is, this is the empire of Rome you're talking about. This is Zeus. This is Hermes. This is Aphrodite. This is the empire of Rome. They would have never believed you. Yet we know in AD 300, Rome becomes Christian which is a very short time in the scheme of history. How? Well, again, when you study the first and second century, one of the ways it happened is there were terrible plagues in the Roman Empire in the first and second century, plagues that they say killed a third to a fourth of the entire population. It was so bad at one point, they would take 5,000 dead bodies a day out of the city of Rome. That's how bad it was. And during these plagues, it said so many Christians survived the plague because they would take care of each other. 
And it would say that so many pagans survived the plague because Christians not only took care of their own, but the Christians with generosity and with compassion would take care of the pagans, that so many pagans survived and became Christian because of the generosity of Christians that it tilted the entire population. And it overthrew the largest empire in the world with, without a military, without an army. So we know that Constantine was the first Christian emperor of Rome around AD 300. What many people don't realize is two to three emperors after Constantine was an emperor named Julian. Julian, we call him Julian the Apostate. Julian's mission was to obliterate Christianity and turn Roman back to a pagan empire. And so Julian outlawed Christianity. He got rid of all the Christian churches. He, he rebuilt all the temples of Rome, the temple of Zeus, all the pagan temples, brought back in the pagan priests, and he tried to stamp out Christianity, but he had a problem. He couldn't change the heart of the people. He could mandate government religion, but he could not change the heart of the people. And here's what Julian said about the predicament he was in. He said, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, and he's talking about the pagan priests. So the pagan priests of the, the state religion of Rome were overlooking the poor. The impious Galileans, Jesus of Galilee, right? This is what Julian called the Christians. The impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence, to generosity, to compassion. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. So not just taking care of their own people, they're taking care of our people. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. You see, Christianity was established through generosity. It wasn't what they believed. It wasn't their theology. It was a no-expectation generosity. It was the hallmark of the first century church, and they understood this concept. This is our legacy, is generosity, radical generosity. It's who we are as followers of Christ. Now, the key for this working in our culture and generation is stewardship. If we don't learn to steward well, we're not going to be generous. If I don't have margin in my life, if I'm not living on a budget, if I'm not living beneath my means, I'm never going to be able to be radically generous if I'm struggling financially and in debt. Because what happens is what God has called me to be generous with, instead of being generous with, with generosity, I'm now taking all that generosity and I'm using it to pay off interest on a credit card payment because I haven't learned how to steward well. So let me, let me help you understand why this is such a big deal. Why, why should we live this way? Well, here's what Paul says to Timothy. And, and this is the key right here. I want you to see this. Command those who are rich in this present world. Did you see it? That's the key right there. Let, let, me, let me help you with it a little bit. Let me, let, me, let me make it more obvious. Command those who are rich in this present world. To which you step back and say, Paul, what are you talking about? What other world is there? Like, why didn't you say command those who are rich in this world? Why did, why did you use the word present world? Like, like, is there another world out there? Why? why? The answer is yes. This, this isn't the only world there is. There's another world that we're actually living for. Like, this isn't even life. You know, we always say when someone dies, they, they move on to the afterlife. No, they move on to life. This is pre-life. Like, we haven't even begun to live yet. Their experience in life, we're still stuck in pre-life. This is a practice lap. This is a dress rehearsal. Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world. See, if you don't understand that there's a present world and there's a coming age, you're not going to be passionate about living this way. You have to understand the reality of our situation. He says, command those who are rich not to be arrogant. How did he know? Have you ever wondered that? Like, How did Paul know that rich people have an inclination to be arrogant? nor to put their hope in wealth. You can't trust the money. It'll let you down, which is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God doesn't mind providing things for your enjoyment. He doesn't mind blessing you. He doesn't mind if you enjoy your surfboard and your golf clubs and your vacation home and your boat. He doesn't mind. He provides all of that for our enjoyment as long as we know who the owner is and we steward it well. But then there's a responsibility. One of the things we say a lot is God doesn't want you to feel guilty. He wants you to feel responsible. It says, command them. Command the rich people. Now, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. What is rich? We decided as a church that if you make in the top 1% 
of the world, you're rich. Like, like not top 10%. Forget the top 10%. If, you, if your salary is in the top 1% of world income, you are rich. That's what we agreed as a church. Not 99% top 1%. Well, they tell us today that if you earn 32,000 US dollars a year, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest salaries in the world. 32,000 US dollars. So we're rich. Let's just be honest. We're rich. This is talking to us. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. Not just to get rich, but to learn how to be rich. You know, it's one thing to get rich. It's another thing to learn how to be good at being rich. This is talking about how do we be good at being rich. Be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. So do more, give more. Now notice he doesn't just command them to do good in an average way. He says, I want you to do good in an above average way. Christians are instructed to do good for other people. Now all, rich Christians, poor Christians, middle class, but he's specifically talking to the rich. I want you to do even gooder than everyone else. I know that's not good grammar, but that's what he's saying. I want you to do gooder than everyone else. And here's the message. The more money you have, the more opportunity you have to do more good than the average person. But here's the challenge. With more money comes more discretionary time, right? And with more discretionary time comes more options that you have. And so what happens in our life is our time gets eaten up on ourself. It gets eaten up on our hobbies. It gets eaten up on all of the extracurricular activities that our kids are involved with. And Paul is warning rich people right now. He's saying, listen, when you increase your wealth, your opportunities are going to increase. And as your discretionary time increases, your inclination will not be to use that time on other people. Your inclination will be to use that time on yourself. So he says, I want you to be rich, not in an average way, but I want you to be rich in good deeds, rich with your time, rich with your generosity, rich with your money. I want you to be good at being rich. And then he says, in this way, in this specific way, what way? Being rich with good deeds, being generous, being willing to share, doing good. In that way, they will lay up treasure for themselves. doesn't say you're doing it for Jesus. He's saying you're actually laying up treasure for yourself when you do this as a firm foundation for the coming age because this present world is not all there is so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So I call today's message, there's more to this life than this life. There is so much more to this life than this life. We're not living for this life. We're living for the next life. Again, this is the dress rehearsal. This is the practice lap. This is why we need to be so intentional and strategic with our life here on earth. Now, here's a concept we looked at a couple weeks ago that I want to revisit in today's message. We don't get credit for what we leave. We get credit for what we give. Well, I put it in my will. You don't get credit for that. Whatever you have in your hands when you die, you lose. The Bible is very clear about this. Think about Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the first billionaire in U.S. history. This is amazing. Do you know how much money Rockefeller left when he died? Did you have any idea how much money Rockefeller left when he died? I'll tell you, all of it. That's how much he left. He didn't take any of it with him. You don't get credit for what you leave. You get credit for what you give. This is a biblical principle all throughout Scripture. Whatever you have in your hands, when you die, you lose. But here's the good news. The Bible teaches us we have a chance to send it ahead. Like if I hold on to it, it dies with me. But I have an opportunity to send it ahead through my generosity. Here's what Jesus says. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. See, if you hold on to stuff on earth, what happens? Moth and rust destroy it. See, that's the problem. When we're rich, when we're blessed, What happens is we store up stuff to the point where where we can't even consume it all. Moth and rust destroy. How many of you in the last year have had to go into your pantry and throw away a loaf of bread because it was filled with mold? I had to do that last week. I opened up my pantry and had a whole loaf of bread filled with mold and I had to throw it away. Do you know what that means? That means I am so rich. I don't even have enough time to consume all of the blessing in my life. That's how rich I am. Like, I'm so rich, I don't even have enough time to eat all of the food that I have. Like, I have to throw away food I'm that rich. I mean, that's a rich person problem. I don't know, we got rich people problems here. Like, a rich person problem is my, my, I don't have cell phone coverage when I turn onto a certain street. That's a rich, there are poor people who would love to have that problem. 
You know, rich people problem is they ran out of my favorite flavor at Starbucks. That, that's, a ri- ri- that, that's a problem other people would love to have. I have to throw away food because I don't have enough time to eat it all. That is a rich person problem. Let's just, let's just acknowledge where we're at today. So don't store up stuff on earth, Jesus says, because it's going to rot. It's going to rust. It's going to be destroyed. You're not going to get any benefit of it at all. But store up for who? Yourself. Yourself. Treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's why we send it ahead through our generosity. Now, all the extra stuff in our life, like the extra house, the extra vacation home, the extra boat, the extra golf, all the extra in our life, that's God's blessing on your life, but that is not your purpose. That's not why you go to work. That's not what you live your life for. Now, look, I'm your pastor, and it's my job to help you. That's the job of a pastor, to help people. Now, One of the things I want to help you understand today is there are two parts to your life. Part one is here on earth. Part one is a very short part of your life. Part two is after earth. It's eternity. And can I tell you, the vast majority of your life doesn't take place here. The vast majority of your life takes place there. And so one of the roles I have is my job is to prepare you for eternity. I got to prepare you not for the short part of your life. I need to prepare you for the long part of your life. Here's what the Bible says in Romans. We will all stand before God's judgment. See, all of us are going to stand before God one day. And we will give an account of ourselves to God. We're going to give an account of how we handled our time, how we handled our treasure, money, talent. We're going to give an account of all of it. And it really, this is what judgment, when you study the Bible, I'm going to make it as simple as I possibly can. Here's what judgment looks like. It's a two-question test that you're going to take. And if you pass the first question, then you move on to round two. That, that's how judgment works for us as Christians. I'm going to make this as simple as I can. And, and because I love you, I'm not only going to tell you what's on the test today, I'm going to give you the right answer too. That's how much I love you. So, so when you stand before God one day, here's question one that you're going to be asked. What did you do with my son Jesus? What did you do with my son Jesus? I sent Jesus to earth to live and die on a cross for all of your sin because he loved you, because of grace, to save you so that you could be in relationship with me. What did you do with that gift? Here's the thing. Hell is not a place that God sends people he's mad at. God's not like, I can't stand that person. Get him away from me. No, no, no. Hell is a place people go who decide to pay for their own sin. And here's what's so unfortunate about that. Jesus already paid for it. So they're they're trying to pay twice for what Jesus already did. Hell is just a place for people who reject God's gift. God sent his son to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, to give his life for us. And all God wanted in return was not our perfection. God didn't want you to be perfect. He just wanted you to give your life back to him. That's all he wanted in return. And unfortunately, many people are going to have the wrong answer. Are they going to, let me show you this in Scripture. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Again, all of us, this is the first step of judgment. This is the question one judgment. All of us are going to stand before the throne one day. And then it says, books, plural, were open. And then another book, singular, was open, which is the book of life. Some, some Bibles call it Lamb's book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. So let me help you understand this. You don't want to be judged according to the books. You want to be judged according to the book, singular. How does that work? Before you give your life to Jesus, all of your life is being recorded. So for me, before I came to Jesus, there were books being recorded. Like, like not just, you know, I wasn't just a chapter in all these. I had books just on me. Like I was in the Encyclopedia Britannica. There were so many books on my life because my life was so full of brokenness and sin that there were books and books and books being written about my life. The moment I gave my life to Jesus, God took all of those books and destroyed them. There's no backup copy. There's no second edition. They are completely destroyed. All of that information is gone. It will never, ever, ever, ever be used against me. 
it's gone. It's completely wiped out and destroyed. And God took my name and he opened Lamb's book of life and he wrote my name. So when we stand before judgment, the first thing that's going to happen is he's going to open Lamb's book of life and he's going to look for your name. If he finds your name, you move on to the second judgment. If he doesn't find your name, you stand and you get judged according to all the books recorded about your life. Challenging. Now, how do I make sure my name is in the right book? Here's what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That, that should startle you a little bit. Because he's not talking about bad people. He's talking about people who think they're doing it right. I mean, no, there are people out there, they know they're not doing it right, and they don't care. That's not who he's talking to. He's saying there are a whole bunch of people who are confused, and they think they're actually doing it the right way. And so not everyone who thinks they're doing it the right way is actually going to heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, many will say, again, many people are going to be confused on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and your name perform many miracles? What he's talking about is religious activities. He's saying there are a whole bunch of people who are trying to be saved through religion. They're trying to be saved through their religiosity. They're trying to be saved by all the, the good things they do for God. Because they completely misunderstand Christianity is not a religion of what you do. It is a relationship because of what has been done. It's completely different. Completely different. And so he's saying all these people are trying to be saved through their own effort, their own performance, their own religion. Then I will tell them, I never knew you. It was all about relationship. So here's the right answer. I knew him personally. What did you do with my son, Jesus? I knew him personally. He was my friend. I gave my life to him. He was my Lord. He was my Savior. I followed him. I surrendered everything I had to him. That is the right answer. Now, this, this is a grace judgment. A lot of people get confused on the second judgment because they think, well, I thought it was all about grace. Yes, this judgment is all grace. It's all what Jesus does for us. Now, once you're saved, once you give your life to Jesus, now your life matters. Now you're living for significance to make a difference. And God is going to ask you, now that I've given you salvation, what did you do with everything else I've given you? And so the Bible says we move on to what is called the judgment seat of Christ, or in the Greek, the bema seat. It's where we get the word for Olympic pedestal. This is a positive judgment nobody needs to be scared of. Because again, all the books about all the bad things have been erased. So the only thing that's left are all the good things you did. Because all the bad things have been erased. And so this is a judgment like the Olympics. If you've ever watched the Olympics, at the end of every event, there's a judgment. One athlete is judged with gold. One athlete is judged with silver. One athlete is judged with bronze. It's very positive. It's a celebration judgment based on how you lived your life. So the second judgment, we stand and we give an account for everything we did. And the question is, what did you do with what I gave you? I gave you talent. I gave you time. I gave you money. I gave you the ability to make money. I gave you a job. I gave you all these things. What did you do with everything that I gave you? How did you use everything I put in your hands? How did you use all of the treasure in your life? And since you're going to be responsible to answer this question, I want to prepare you for it. That's why we're doing the whole series, is for this very question. Here's what Paul says. All of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body. So this is where we receive. Now, the way this judgment works is it's either going to take a long time or it's going to either going to be very, very short. Can I tell you, you don't want this one to be short. You want to be up there for a while. You don't want, you don't want Jesus to find, okay, it's like you help, you help somebody cross the road back in third grade. That's, that's all I can find. Like, you don't want that. Like, you want to live a life of generosity. You want to live a life of significance. You want to live a life that matters so that you will be up there for a while. Because he's excited about this. Look what it says in Matthew 16. He's actually bringing all his rewards with him. He says, look, I'm coming back, and I've got the rewards with me. Like, I'm not even waiting until we get to heaven. I want to reward you now. I'm so excited and so grateful for everything you did on my behalf that I can't wait to reward you. So the right answer is I gave my life away. I gave it all to you, Jesus. You owned everything. It was all for you. I lived for you. My entire life was for you. I gave it away. I lived as a steward, in other words. You know, before you find Jesus, your whole life is about finding Jesus. After you find Jesus, it's all about making a difference. Now, the problem is too many people live by happenstance. They, they just live spontaneously, emotionally. They don't, they don't have any strategy for this. They don't have any intentionality behind this. And so I, I have a job to teach you with a Christian view of giving. 
Now, I want to I talk about giving money for just a moment. In the Bible, there are three different givings of money, three different ways we give money in the Bible. The first is tithes. We talked about that week two of the series. That's, that's step one. That's the foundation of all of our financial giving is God gets the first 10%. Then there's what the Bible calls offerings. Offerings are what we give above the tithe. Anytime I give above the tithe, that is what I'm offering to God. But did you know, see, a lot of people just believe there's these two. There's actually a third type of financial giving in the Bible. There's a third that we see throughout Scripture, and it's what we call extravagant offerings. Some people call it painful offerings. Some people call it crazy offerings because God scares the life out of you when he asks you to do it. And I've been a part of that a few times. I'm telling you, if you've never been there, you're missing out on Christianity because it is so much fun when you get to that place. When God asks you for something crazy, when God asks you for something that doesn't make sense, when God asks you to do something that, that kind of puts your heart into a little bit of a panic attack, it is so rewarding. And here's the good news. Every time in the Bible somebody did an extravagant offering, God always responded extravagantly. Every time. Every time in my life God has asked me to go into extravagant offerings, he has always responded to me extravagantly. So let me end with these two thoughts. First, what is my giving strategy? I'm not supposed to live emotionally. I'm supposed to live intentionally. So what is my strategy? Do I have a plan for how I give? Do I have a, do I have a generosity strategy in my family? What is my generosity strategy in my family? So I'm going to give you some thoughts on this one. These don't apply to everyone, so just take the ones that apply to you. To build a strategy, here's, here's some thoughts and steps. First, get out of debt. It's very difficult to be generous when you're in debt. You don't have the margin to truly be generous when you're struggling with debt. And again, this is not to shame or, or, or condemn you. I found myself in that position a few years ago and had to get honest and had to take some steps. And, and, and through some hard work, God brought me out of debt. And my generosity has increased dramatically since I've gotten out of debt. It's very hard. A lot of people want to be generous, but they can't. So first is get out of debt. Second is live on a budget. Live on a budget. It's hard to be generous if, if you're not living on a budget. If you don't know where the money is going and how it's being spent, you're just hoping for the best, it's really hard to live the life of generosity God has called you to live when you don't, when you don't know where everything's at. Next is live beneath my means. If, you, if you're consuming everything on yourself, then you have nothing left over to be generous with. So we have to, we have to learn to live beneath our means so that we can fulfill the call of God on our life, which is to be generous. He says, I will bless you to be a blessing. And then finally, and this one applies to, I believe, everyone here today, and I would encourage you, is budget generosity into my life. I, I believe you should budget generosity into your life. One of the things I personally do with, with, with Amanda and I and our family is if you look at our expense budget, like our monthly budget, on the expense category, the number one thing is my tithe. Tithe is first. The first 10% is God's. I don't even think about it. That's number one. The second thing on my expense line is generosity. I actually budget 5% of all of my income into generosity. So the first 10% goes to God. Second 5%, go, and, I, and I try to increase it a little bit every year, but right now it's at 5% and it's generosity. And the way I do it is I take that 5% and it just grows all year long. It just grows, and I have now a bucket of generosity in my bank account that when God calls me to respond, I can very easily respond. So if I see a family in need or, or somebody that's struggling or, or God touches my heart to, to help somebody or, or give to the church because we're doing a project at the church, I now have a whole bucket of generosity that I can easily respond out of because I put it into my budget. I'm telling you, it's so much fun when you budget generosity into your life. It makes it so much easier to be generous when God calls you to be generous. And the second thing is, what is my giving filter? So I need a strategy, but I also need a filter. There needs to be criteria to how and, and what and where I give. So let me make a statement that, that may not make sense at first, and it may be hard to swallow at first, but, but here's the statement. Not all generosity counts. Now, I know you may not like that right now, but I'll explain it to you. Not all generosity counts. I need to be selective about where I'm generous. And so I have a filter in my life. And, and here's why. And, and again, not, let me put it like this. Not all generosity counts. Not everything we give is sent ahead. 
Remember, the goal is to send it ahead, store up treasures in heaven. Not everything I give is being stored up in heaven. The Bible's clear about this. Here's what Paul says in Corinthians. If anyone builds on this foundation, so let me help you understand this. When I give money to a charity, I'm helping build that charity, right? If I give money to a church, I'm helping build that church. If I give money to a nonprofit, I'm helping build that nonprofit. So whatever I give money to, I'm helping build. If anyone builds, so basically where I give money to on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, it says their work, what we give money to, will be shown for what it is. So it does matter where I give money. Because the day, capital D, that's judgment day, that's the day I stand and give an account for all of my generosity, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So, the, so basically, if it survives the fire, then I gave to something that I'm storing up in heaven. Because all of this is going to end one day, and the only thing that's going to survive is people. The only thing we can take with us to heaven is people. We can't take our possessions to heaven, but we can take people to heaven. That's why Jesus put us on this mandate to bring as many people to him as possible. So it'll test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built, if what I give money to survives, so if what I gave to survives the fire, survives judgment day, the builder will receive a reward. I'm storing up rewards in heaven. But if it's burned up, if I gave money to charity that really doesn't matter after Jesus comes back, the builder is going to suffer loss but yet still be saved. So I still get to go to heaven, I just didn't store up any rewards for it. Now, what does this mean? Well, let me put it like this. I, I believe in being a conservationist. I believe in taking care of the world that we live in and the environment we live in. But I'm not going to give money to an environmental charity. Why? Because this whole world is going to be destroyed and rebuilt by Jesus anyways. So I'm going to be a good steward. I'm not going to abuse the world that I live in. I'm not going to take advantage of the world we live in. But I'm not going to give money to something that's not going to pass the test of fire. Because it's all going to be gone anyway. So why would I give money to something if I'm not getting an eternal reward for it? When Jesus told me, as a Christian, I need to be laying up treasure in heaven. There's a reason he's telling us this. So let me give you my filter. This is my top. I got more. This is just my top three. I'm not giving you all because I believe everyone needs to come up with their own. The first is the relationship question. Who am I in relationship with? In other words, I want to leverage my money with people I'm in relationship with. Because when I leverage my money relationally, I can accomplish more. So here's the answer to this question for me personally. Who am I, Aaron Jane, in relationship with? You. I'm in relationship with you. You are my church family. So the, the largest percentage of my generosity every single year is going to be through Coastline, through what we do together as a church family, because we are in relationship, and I believe in the difference God is allowing our church to make. So the largest amount of my generosity is always going to be with you. I'm going to leverage my money with you to do something significant for God through this church family. Here's what the Bible says, through followers of Jesus like yourself, gathered in churches, that's plural. Why? Because there's many churches throughout North County. And he, God has taken Christians in North County, and he's gathering together in church families. And there are great church families all throughout this community. This is our church family. And he does this so that his extraordinary plan can become known and talked about among the angels. So he gathers us together to accomplish something together. That's why I believe in the relationship question. Ecclesiastes say two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. So here's the thought. We is always better than me. We will always be better than me. Here's the second one. The difference question. Will it make an eternal difference? Now, we already talked about that a little bit. I showed you what Paul said about this. Let me show you what Jesus said about it. Jesus said, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. See, we get so caught up with social justice and social compassion in the world today. Like, we want to feed starving kids in Africa. Listen, I don't mind feeding a starving kid in Africa if we're going to tell him about Jesus. But the only reason we feed starving kids in Africa is to tell them about Jesus. Jesus said, why are you, why are you so concerned about perishable things like food? Listen, what, what good do I do if I give my money to feed some starving kid in Africa and we don't tell him about Jesus? He's fed for a day, but he goes to hell forever. I lose. I lose. 
I made no eternal difference with that generosity. I took care of a need that lasts for a moment, but I didn't do anything eternally. Jesus says, spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man came to give you. And then finally, the God question, is God speaking to me? What is God saying? I'm telling you, the greatest way to learn how to hear the voice of God, so many people say, I don't hear God speaking to me. In the area of generosity, it'll be the quickest way you learn to hear God's voice. God always loves to speak to you about giving. God is a giver. He's very, very generous. Very generous, Father. For God so loved the world that he gave, and he wants his children to look like himself. So if you want to learn how to hear God's voice, the easiest way is in the area of generosity. I want to end today with with a story from a young couple in our church that is very inspirational to me. I've known them for years. You're going to see a video of them from 2008 before they were ever part of our church when they began the journey of generosity, and you're going to see where they're at today. Let's watch this story as we close today. So we were both... 24, 25, I was a brand new naval officer. We were living in uh, Florida, going to a church, and we went to a prayer meeting at the end of 21 days of prayer and fasting, just like we do here. And during that prayer meeting, it was the first time I ever had fasted before, and I heard God speak to me plainly during that pr- prayer meeting that He wanted us to, shell, to sell uh, shares of stock that we owned in a company that represented at the time most all of our net worth. And I'd never really heard God speak to me before, definitely never heard him speak to me in the area of generosity. And I didn't really know what to do with it, but I just was excited that God would speak to me. And so after the prayer meeting, we walked out in the parking lot and I told Christy, I think God wants us to sell our shares of stock and give it all to the church. And I really didn't know what she would think. I thought maybe she'd be mad because I was talking about basically all of our savings. But I I just shared it with her and and what she told me just amazed me. So while he was having that experience, at the very same time the Lord was working in my heart, he was like, I want you to sell all your shares in ExxonMobil and give them to me. And I was just like, Eric is not going to be on board with this. Um... So we get in the car and he tells me that and I was just like, my jaw dropped. I was like, he told me the exact same thing, so. Shortly thereafter, we we shared our story with the pastor. He asked us to record it and we shared it with the church. And um, we were invited to a dinner with, with a businessman. He came and spoke and he talked about how his life's work in ministry was to be a businessman for the kingdom and to produce uh, provision for the vision of the of the house. And we went to that meeting and both of us just sat there and we said, this is it, this is our life's work and this is what we wanna do with our life. We wanna partner with the local church. We wanna be business people, we wanna make money and we wanna provide for the church. And so God started to work in our hearts. Um, and so the next time he came and spoke to us, it was twice what he asked us to give before. And this is of course over and above our tithe, but. Um, and so we just were, began to be obedient and, and gave in that. And um, as we were obedient, God keep, kept working in our lives. And so the numbers kept getting bigger and bigger and the faith required started getting more and more significant. And so you know, shortly after coming to Coastline, God's, God spoke to me and now the number was 20 times what we had given in that first uh, first gift when he spoke to us. And again, I was like, I think my wife's gonna be upset. I don't think she's gonna wanna do this. And and so I, you know, I told you the number and I said, this is what I think God's calling us to do. And what'd you say? I said, he, yes. <laughs> he told me the same thing a few days ago and I haven't told you because it's scary. <laughs> and so, you know, so, but again, we knew that, um, God was calling us to do it, uh, but it didn't make it any easier. And I remember we wrote the check and we were, we were gonna prepare to give it to the church, the coastline the next day. And I got terrified in the middle of the night. Um, and God just told me, open up your Bible to 1 Kings 17. And you know I hadn't heard that preached on up until that point. And it talks about how the widow gave everything she had and but Elijah told her not to be concerned because the oil and the flour wouldn't run dry until the time that the Lord brought rain. And I knew in that moment the Lord was talking to me, calling me and saying, you don't have to be scared. This is this is almost all of your net worth, but I will bring rain. I will provide for you and your family. You don't have to be worried about it. And so the next day we did it. And I would say that was that was a real catalyst for um 
us taking off in our business. And, and you know, since then, you know, all in over the last 10, 11 years, God has enabled us to give 100 times uh, over and above our tithe what he called us to give in that first moment 11 years ago. And we've been excited to do it. Um, we've been and scared and scared at the same time. <laughs> but, you know, through faith, we've we've just been honored that God would allow us to partner with his church uh, to support this church, our house, uh, and do the work of carrying the gospel forward in North County. And it's just really an honor. We're thrilled to do it. Um, at the end of David's life, he said that um, I have provided for the house of the Lord with all of my might. And you know that's our goal and that's what we want to do. So inspirational to see that young family. You know, it brings up what Jesus said in John 10, my sheep know my voice. And one of the greatest things in generosity is learning to hear God's voice in the area of giving. I remember a couple years ago when God asked me to step out and do something extravagant and uh, we were in the middle of doing an offering for Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq. Uh, for, for those of you that remember the whole situation with ISIS, there's all Christian community in Mosul that, you know, people think Iraq, they think Bedouins. They think people living in caves in the desert. This was a community that was nicer than, than this area. Like the homes were bigger and nicer and beautiful. My wife's mother lived there. Uh, the whole Iraqi community of Christians who were doctors and lawyers, their kids went to school, they played sports. And then all of a sudden, ISIS. And all of these families lost everything. They lost all their money, they lost all their possessions, and they're living in refugee camps in the middle of nowhere. I mean, can you imagine if one day we woke up and there's some foreign country invaded our area and we're all living in the desert of Palm Springs in refugee camps and we've lost everything that we own? That's what took place. And so we were giving an offering to help these Christian brothers and sisters. And I'm driving home. And God asked me a question. God asked, will you give me what matters most? And my first response to God was, thank you for asking me that. I'm sure you don't ask everybody that. I'm sure you know for most people that would be a waste of time to ask that question because you already know how they'll respond. But I'm, just, I'm grateful that you would even ask that, that you would even trust me enough that, that I would say yes to you. I said, yeah, you, you can have, and I knew what he meant. See, I'm not, if those of you that know me personally know I'm not a real materialistic person. There, there's really, I don't like stuff. I mean, I don't, there's really not stuff that I have that I wouldn't let go of. You know, I mean, I've given away cars. I've given away stuff. It's just like, things don't really matter a whole lot to me. Um, it's just not, it's not the way I'm wired. I don't think it's because I'm holy. I just think it's the way God wired me. I'm just not into stuff. But that year, that summer was my 40th birthday, 10-year wedding anniversary, five-year anniversary of pastoring this church. My wife said, you're going to do something for you. You never do anything for you. You take care of us, but you never do anything for you. You're going to do something for you. And so my wife made me go out and get a Harley. And that wasn't too hard because I wanted a Harley. Um, I had a Harley when we first got married, but I sold it to get out of debt, learn how to become a good steward. And, and so I hadn't had a Harley since. And she says, you're going to go get a Harley. And so I got, I got a little one, not, not one of the, the big ones, but just one of the little entry-level Harleys, and I loved that bike. I had so much fun on it all summer long, and, and then December rolls around, and we're doing this offering, and God says, will you give me what matters most? And I knew immediately what God was asking, and some of you were here. You remember, I brought the motorcycle and put it right up here at the front of the stage, and said, God told me to give my bike, and, and we gave it. Now, what I didn't know is that week, God supernaturally spoke to my wife to have another child. You see, the only thing I've ever wanted for the last 10 years was another child, like we had our first son, he was eight years old at the time, and he was, there were so many complications to the pregnancy. She was like, we are never having another child. And I pressured her for five years, and then I gave up because she was absolutely crystal clear, we are never having another child. I gave my bike, God tells her to have another child. Now, she doesn't tell me for three months because she spends three months arguing with God, are you sure this is what you want me to do? <laughs> and now we have a beautiful two-year-old boy. I traded my bike in for a boy. It was the greatest trade I've ever made. <laughs> I tell you, I gave what mattered most. God gave me back what mattered most. You'll never go wrong in a life of generosity. You'll never go wrong in generosity. So we're going to end this series. Let me give you a couple next steps to consider, and then we're going to close. Read the blessed books. These are very valuable. I cannot encourage you enough to take these to heart. Set your, if all of this is true that we talked about today... Be intentional. Do some due diligence. Plan, strategize, read, study, prepare yourself for everything we talked about. Join a stewardship small group. If you haven't done it, 
Be a part of one. It's not just for people struggling financially. It's for all of us to learn how to be significant, to learn how to leave legacy, to learn how to do things God's way. Become a faithful steward. All of you are a steward. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? You're all, even if you think everything you have is yours, it's still God's. It's still God's. So you are a steward, whether you like it or not, you might as well decide to become a good one. And then finally, create a lasting legacy. You're here for a reason. Your life is not you. God didn't put you on earth just to retire and try to get your kids through college. Your job means a little bit more than that. Your life means a little bit more than that. You're here for something significant. Create a lasting legacy. Would you close your eyes? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. God, for this challenging series that we need. Let it speak to our heart. Let it land deep on each and every one of us where it needs to land. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Our prayer team is going to be available. If when you were here, when I was talking about that judgment day stuff, that first question, what did you do with my son Jesus? If you don't know the answer to that question, please don't leave today without talking to somebody on our prayer team. Don't leave without knowing the condition of your soul. You, you don't want to get that one wrong. You don't want to leave that one to chance. If you don't know whether or not you're in relationship with Jesus, come pray with somebody on our team. They'll help you understand. They'll help explain it to you. And they'll help you respond if you need to respond today. If you need prayer for anything else, come. Our team will be available. Now, as we close today, for those of you that have not been to our 4 o'clock Sunday experience, we changed it up about a month ago. It's very different. It's kind of like a worship night. Uh, It's totally different than Sunday morning. It's a power. There's times of ministry and communion and and worship and prayer. And then the, the message is the same, but everything else is different. Well, one of the things that God is doing on Sunday right, night right now is he's, he's, he's birthing new songs in the heart of our church. And so I wanted Cody, he, uh, God gave him a song recently that we sang last Sunday night. So he wrote this song and I, we sang it last, it was so powerful. I said, we got to end today with this song. So I want you to hear one of the songs that God is beginning to, to bring out of Coastline. And I believe there will come a day where churches all over the world are going to be singing this song. And it was born right here at Coastline. And so I want you to, to worship with us with this song that Cody wrote.